what does diversity actually mean? And it, it's it's just it's difference, right? It's difference, and and it's difference in all different ways. Starting from there and going, what it looks like for somebody to be successful is not exactly the same for every single person, right? What it means for somebody to be excited or dedicated or a hard worker does not present exactly the same way. There's no mold for that. I mean, I'm very worried about hybrid work backfiring. I think a challenge is that a lot of companies are patting themselves on the back for doing hybrid. What they don't understand is that it'll be too easy to create a two-tiered system between people in the office and people who are not in the office. First of all, we're all part of this future work ecosystem. I don't think we necessarily signed up for it. But now, to me, the pace, how fast it's moving, it's really more like now of work. everybody. I'm Felicia. And I'm Rachel. And welcome to the SGO podcast, the She Geeks Out podcast. This season is unlike any that we put out so far. What does the future of work look like when we're thinking about diversity and inclusivity and equity? And what does it look like for different groups of people? We got to interview so many incredible people. You'll also be hearing some little snippets and interjections from our facilitation team. You'll get their perspectives on what DEI really looks like in the workplace from a practical, actionable standpoint. So let's go. This week, we're talking about what it looks like to put the pieces in place and create a truly inclusive culture. There's so many different facts that come together to form a company culture, from organizational values, leadership approaches, team building strategies, and more. We talked with people managers about how they approach leadership, the challenges in coming together with a hybrid or remote team, as well as strategies that folks are using to combat those difficulties, and how it feels when your team is running in alignment with the values of DEI. The truth is, while we can define inclusion and belonging all day long, it might look a little different to different people. We think examples will help, so we asked our facilitation team what an inclusive culture feels like to them. To start off with some examples from my co-host, Felicia Jadzak. So inclusive culture is a big is a big one <laughs> because it's what I love to call a squishy definition because it can look and feel so different for many different people and different organizations. For me personally, the way that I like to think about inclusive culture is it's a culture where if I'm part of that team or that organization, SGO, for example, I feel like I can bring my fullest authentic self to work. And what that means... Because I think sometimes we we throw this phrase around, bring your authentic self to work. And we don't always talk about what that actually even means. So what that means for me is that I can feel comfortable sharing as much or as little about myself as I want to. I don't feel like I'm forced into hiding anything. And I also, on the flip side, don't feel like I'm forced into revealing anything that I'm not comfortable with. I think it also speaks to not just how I feel or how others feel, but also basically all of the aspects that go into an organization. So that's everything from what are the policies that are in place to what is the language that we use? How do we assign work? Who gets to be assigned to different projects? How are we interacting with each other? What are those interpersonal communications or experiences looking like? It's basically anything and everything that you can think about. And I think that's why it tends to be overwhelming or squishy because there's just so much that goes into that. But at the end of the day, for me, beyond all of the different things around like policies and steps and documentation and things like that, it really comes down to how do I feel? For me at SGO, it's something that's really top of mind because... I've worked at a number of different organizations in my past, and there's been differing levels of feeling included or not, or having really healthy culture or not, depending on where I was and where I was at that point in my life. But something that I'm always really conscious of is I want this to be a place where people feel welcomed. They feel like they can grow themselves. They feel like they can stretch, and they can feel like they can also be real human beings. And that sounds simple or or maybe stupid even. But sometimes I think when we get into this work mode, depending on industries too, but we get into this work mode and we feel like we have to fit a certain mold. And I really want to think about what does it look like to be in a work mode where 
maybe it doesn't look like what we've seen before. And to me, that's really what inclusive culture is about. So I feel comfortable telling my team, hey, I'm taking off Tuesday morning because I have therapy. And that's not something that I'm ashamed of because it actually is really helpful for me. And that's something that I feel comfortable sharing and modeling that and people do as well. So that to me is a hallmark of inclusive culture here. Or saying, I'm getting into this really intense work meeting, but something is happening personally. And either I'm going to share that with my team so they know my headspace and where I'm coming from. Or maybe I'll say, you know what? I need five minutes or I need to step away for a second because I've got to deal with something. Or this meeting can continue, but I have to change up the timing for this going forward because I've got some stuff going on, whether or not I decide to share. But I can still have that kind of conversation with people. So it's really just about, I think, meeting people where they're at and being really supportive and giving people the space to show up in whatever way that feels best for them. I think that it is such an interesting um, thought experiment because an inclusive culture for me is a space where you are free to ask questions, make mistakes, to share pieces of yourself. So being forward with the fact that Maybe you didn't sleep great the night before and you're just not feeling your best self. Can we move a meeting? Which I've done. And it's always said, yes, cool. Like no big deal. An inclusive culture is acknowledging the fact that, you know what, I'm going to make some spelling errors and that's okay. I'm not getting negative feedback for not having quote unquote ownership over my work because I made a spelling error. An inclusive culture is my supervisor encouraging me to push back because I have a different idea or sharing things when it doesn't feel right. So if something is happening and it just doesn't, it doesn't sit well in my gut or I need more context, that to me is inclusion and not being afraid to share who I am, meaning I can say my fiance and folks aren't assuming I am engaged to a man because I have been able to openly share the fact that I am engaged to a woman. An inclusive culture to me means that I can have my cats just walk in front of the camera and nobody cares or bats an eye, really. They do care because they're very excited, but like they don't bat an eye and they're not looking down or think that I am less than because one of my fur babies came into the view. It feels psychologically safe. An inclusive culture to me feels psychologically safe where I can be whoever I am at any given point and I am embraced for who I am because I contribute meaningfully and I have a positive impact. So for me, an inclusive culture is not just about like the check boxes. It truly goes hand in hand with that feeling. And if the two don't coincide for me, I wouldn't stay in an environment like that. I have to have psychological safety. I have to feel like I can show up as myself, whatever that looks like on a daily basis. And it is not only embraced, but celebrated and just like honored, however that looks. To me, an inclusive culture feels welcoming of all people. It feels like a place where I can breathe and let my shoulders down. It feels safe and full of support. I can see people represented from all types of backgrounds, age groups, political affiliations, religions, countries even. I see leadership modeling behaviors of acceptance and empathy, being open when folks call them in and excited to learn about ways to make the workplace more than just a space where folks go to earn a paycheck. And I've said before, I do not believe in work families, but I do believe and work being a place that you can enjoy showing up to because the culture is one of support, authenticity, and value of our shared humanity. To me, it's having space to 
feel as though I can bring my most authentic self to work, my most authentic Kaya work self, I would say, and who that is being able to laugh and joke, have conversations with folks that are meaningful, but also like showcase that like I'm obsessed with TikTok. And I think that that's something that SGO really <laughs> like emphasizes. It's part of our work and we can have fun with it too. So I love the balance of fun and work. And when it comes to feeling like I'm in a space that values me, knowing that I'm an introvert and I take a second to think things over, having a multitude of ways to give feedback. So whether it be live feedback of like, hey, we're going to take a second and write things on a sticky note so I can compose my thoughts, think about them, write them down, share them, or hey, this is a Google survey. If you don't want to do this right now live in this meeting, you can do it afterwards. And that really has made me feel included in a workplace. This hasn't just happened at SGO, it's happened to other places. And I've really enjoyed that. Or like, hey, Kaya, I feel like you've been working on this project for a long time. And I really want you to take the lead in this meeting because I don't see you normally taking the lead. Like really emphasizing that like, hey, you've been doing a good job. Now you can take the lead on this. So I have the confidence confidence and feel as though I can be a leader in a workplace that's I'm not typically seen as a leader, right? So I think that those are some of the things. I think representation matters. And I think that's something I've really enjoyed about SGO is that we are a very quote unquote diverse team. But I like that, like I somewhat see myself in the team, whether it comes to race, ethnicity, like being mixed race, being queer, being mid-sized even. Like I love that that our team is inclusive in that ways and that I don't feel like a necessarily outsider in that space. I'm trying to think of any other ways. I think just like being able to have a supervisor too, that like lets me talk about my fears and anxieties, whether it be like the littlest things when it comes to like getting feedback, but also celebrating joy and giving positive feedback and showcasing that like, Hey, you are doing a good job. These are the X, Y, Z things I would fix for next time and not having it feel like a catastrophe. Like, Oh, I might lose my job because I didn't do this thing. That's like not how, what I get, especially in this workplace. This has been the most inclusive workplace. So I keep saying SGO examples, but I think those are all the things. And also having a flexible workspace and like work time too. I think that that's been really helpful for me when thinking about where I want to work. And like, if I happen to ever look for another job, that that's something I really want to keep is being able to like, as long as my work is getting done, I can kind of do what I want with my day within reason, which is really nice. After Felicia, you heard from SGODEI facilitators Dr. Victoria Verletza, Rachel Sadler, and Kaya Rivera. Next up, we sat down with Amaya Arubarena. Amaya is the Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at EasyCater, and she told us all about how she approaches leading a team with inclusion at the forefront. I've been managing people for about four years now. My team has changed a, a lot over the last few years because of COVID. So, and my position was has, has also changed. The company has changed, but I've been managing people since I think 2018 is the right answer. Yeah. And I really love it. I love being a people manager. One of the reasons I wanted to manage people was to be the person I always wanted to have. And for so many different reasons. And I've had, I've had phenomenal managers and I've had not so phenomenal managers in my life, in my, you know, whole, any job, not just definitely not just in, in tech, but in any job I've ever worked and knowing the difference of what, I mean, even just the conversation we, you know, we just had the difference a manager can make in how you feel about yourself and your experience and your energy. And just, there's so much that goes into that. And one of the reasons, I mean, I said earlier, one of the reasons I wanted to be a doctor was to help people. One of the reasons I do my job is because however I can give support, anything in the way that I think everyone should have. I'm just like, yeah, like if, there, if someone's got to do it, let it be me. I want to do it. <laughs> I want to make sure. One of the biggest challenges that I see for new managers for sure, but can also continue at all levels is how you feel successful in your role. Because when you're an IC and you are in your contributor, sorry, individual contributor, when you are given something, here's your project, here's your task, here's whatever it is. It's like, it's very clear when you have done something, right? Like do this, you completed it, you did it well. Okay, great. You're doing good at your job. Managing people is not as black and white. And we love, I mean, we know this, right? Like as humans, we love when things are binary. We love when it's this or it's that. We can like categorize it. Our brains are happy. And people management is not, it's not like that, right? So the way that you're that you are deemed successful in your role, the way that success is defined for you, 
significantly changes when you become a manager, right? And so I think one thing that I would do when I first became a manager, because you do, there is like, we're all human and we have egos, right? It's natural to be like, okay, but I still want to be seen as competent and good in my role. And you see this work that you used to do. And now you're having to hand that off, right? And like, how do you know, like, do I, you don't want to take credit for people's work, but you also want people to know like what you're doing. And like, it's just this weird space to exist in at first. And that's totally normal. So for me, when I was new, something I would repeat to myself over and over again is my team's success is my success. My team's success is my success. And that it is not about how much work I can do. It's how I can empower and support my people in growing and doing this work, right? Like, if you have brilliant people on your team, get out of their way. Let them be brilliant. Let them do the things they are capable of doing. It doesn't make you look unnecessary. It makes you look like a great leader. To me, that's what a great leader does is, is recognize people's strengths, give them work that allows them to flex the muscles that they have, bring the best out in them, and then bring the best out in the team. And just repeat that to yourself. My team success is my success. I think that's a big challenge for managers at first. And it can continue to be if you don't ever have that like reckoning, I guess. What in your opinion or your experience has been a great way for you to build trust and make connections with people on your team, particularly in the last couple of years when we've had the challenges of being remote and hybrid where perhaps we weren't before as a team? Yeah. Yeah. Strong communication, open communication, transparent communication. Whenever I first have someone join my team, I talk to them about my management style. I ask them what type of management style they like, what environment do they work best in? How can I best support them to be successful? And then make sure that we're on the same page about what does that mean? When I say strong communication, I think we all think we're better at communicating than we actually are. And for me, communication is the end all be all. So if we can have good communication, then that, I think we have already solved more problems than we than we'll never know because we've prevented them, right? Like we solved them before they started. So what's important to me when I'm having conversations with my team is, are you hearing this the way I'm saying it? And then when my team tells me something, I repeat back to them, here is what I think you said. This is what I heard. Is that right? Does that sound right to you? Does it sound right to both of us, right? Like, are we actually on the same page or do we just think we're on the same page, right? Like the importance of being really present and listening. And then also, I mentioned this a little earlier, but I really do try to check my ego in everything that I do. And I know it can be hard to be transparent with things. And when in a scary time, like what has happened the last couple of years, where like we experienced layoffs, things were uncertain for a really long time, not just at work, but everywhere in every aspect of our life. And we can start to like, when things feel so out of control, we naturally want to control, right? And so, so I, I can't control everything, but I can control this. So I'm going to hone on on what I can control. And we need to feel like I say power, not in like a super negative sense, because again, I, I, I want to like go back to like, this is such a human thing and need. Knowledge is power. Information is power. And when you're afraid, when you don't know, like, are layoffs coming again? Am I next? Like, I want to make sure that I'm seen as vital to the company. You start wanting to hold on to things, right? You want to be the person that people have to go to, to ask questions. You want to be the person who's seen as the, oh, I, Amaya made that decision, right? And so it can then start to feel like you want to hoard information. And I tried to do, I tried to be really aware of where I was at, why I was there and check myself and check why I was doing things consistently and then be as transparent with my team as I could be and say, Hey, I'm going to tell you everything I can tell you. And if you ask me something and I can't tell you, I'll tell you, I can't tell you it. And I'll do my best to tell you why. But for me, what's in my brain, I want in your brain. Right. Like that is how we can be the most in my most efficient, most successful. Everyone's on the same page. We don't have any miscommunication is like what I've got. You've got tell me what questions. Let's get clear. And then that way we can just hopefully continue to move forward together and whatever that looks like. And whenever that changes, we'll do that dance again. Right. That was kind of what I leaned on, just being as transparent as possible, communicating as much as possible. 
One thing that I know I've struggled with in the past as a newish middle, I don't want to call it middle-aged manager, but (laughs) you know what I mean, is managing people whose styles and work style and communication style and, you know, even if they're introverted versus being more extroverted is really different than me. And it sometimes can be hard to adjust to that when it's not your mode of work or what you're familiar with. And is that something that you've had experience with or any issues with or even like mistakes made and beyond that too, beyond communication or work style differences, as we're seeing more and more generations come into the workforce, I'm curious if you've had experience working and managing people who are of different generations than you and how that's played out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I want to start by saying, especially working in DEI, when we say, well, what does diversity actually mean? And it, it's it's just, it's difference, right? It's difference and it's difference in all different ways. And so I think starting from there and going, what it looks like for somebody to be successful is not exactly the same for every single person, right? What it means for somebody to be excited or dedicated or a hard worker does not present exactly the same way. There's no mold for that, right? And so with that, if we believe that, which I do deeply, I hope doing this work, then I can recognize that and go, okay, checking my assumptions and bias about what that looks like and starting from like a... Like I said, I start with the conversation with my folks the first time I... I bring them onto my team. And I say, Hey, like, tell me, tell me about you. Tell me your working style. Tell me what you need. Tell me how you like to interact because I am in a position of power as the manager. And I do believe like with great power comes great responsibility, right? Like, thank you, Spider-Man. That will forever be, but it's true. It's when you are in a position of power, I do think the responsibility lies with you to be adaptable and adjustable, right? Like, And that's also just the job of not just being in a position of power, but being a manager. So I think of it as like a teacher, right? Like when you're the person who's teaching a subject, not everybody learns the same way. It's your job to be able to adapt the way you're teaching something to people's learning styles. I feel exactly the same way about management. It is my job to be able to work with you until I understand how do you need to hear this? Or how do I need to show you this for it to click for you? What do you need from me? And how can I adjust myself to make sure I am giving that to you? Because it's my job to set you up for success. So I think it's just super important to really get to know your people and to know yourself, right? (laughs) I think actually I should have started there. I think so much of doing this work well in any capacity is knowing who you are and being very self-aware because if you don't know if you don't know why you're doing the things you're doing if you don't know where your motivation comes from if you don't know where your biases are if you don't know that it's going to be really hard to be aware of like when they are affecting your behaviors and your actions right so i think being really aware of who you are and then really knowing your people deeply knowing them deeply and coming with an open mind of like the way you are, you are a whole wonderful person and you are brilliant and talented and gifted and all of these things, which is why you're on my team. I'm so excited to have you here. Let me not mess that up by then trying to fit you into a mold of like, well, this is how I do things. So that's how you should do it. Absolutely not. Show me how you do it because you might teach me something. Amaya, that is how I used to manage people. Yeah. When I was a first of manager, I love telling the story because it's so true. I was a manager and it was like, well, I was promoted because I was really good at this thing and now I'm managing the people. And so I'm clearly so good at this thing. Y'all should do it the same way as I'm doing it. Bad choice. So I would love to know, how did you learn all of this? Did you make a lot of mistakes? Did you have a mentor? Like, I'm just curious. Did you listen to a lot of podcasts? I'm like, what? How did you get this? Or do you feel like this was just sort of a natural... You just came out of the womb like this? I think about this all a lot. But I also... I think some of it came from not having it. So being very aware of when I when I went through something or when I had a manager who didn't support me or who treated me a certain way or things just felt wrong or I didn't understand, really processing that and thinking about like, okay, what was happening here? And then how do I not do that? The plus side of having a bad manager, totally, where it's like sometimes, you know, you're exposed to things and, and I, I do, I'm grateful for them because it's like, wow. I experienced firsthand the impact this can have on somebody. And I am so grateful for the manager I have right now. I report directly into our chief people and culture officer, Janine. She is like the most wonderful human. And I tell her, I try to tell her regularly, because of who she is as a manager, 
I feel empowered to be who I am as a manager, because I I know there are people who are going to hear this, who are feeling like I would love to be that way. And I am not in a place where I can be that way because I'm not in a system that supports that. I don't have a manager that supports that. And that's very real. That's very, very real. That's something that like deeply saddens me when I think about how many people out there are affected by that, right? So not just the manager who doesn't get to be the manager they want to be, but then of course, all of their reports who are then impacted by that. And so I've had incredible people to work from and learn from, and then not so incredible people who I also learn from, but I try to really internalize it and think about what that means, draw from experience, be self-aware, all of those things at the same time. I think it's a combination of all of that. And just, I deeply care for people. I really, really love people. That is definitely just who I've always been as a person. I really love humans. As messy as we are, I deeply care about the human experience. And I know so many times people are fighting battles. We have not, we have no clue that they are. And if there is a way that I can, even in just one area of their life, help them or make it easier for them or support them or make them feel seen or valued, then like, I know I want to do that. And this is, this is my area that I can affect. So I try to like, stay there. Like even when I'm having like the worst day, just like, remember that. Here's Karina Becerra, Director of Customer Advocacy at Podium in Utah. Karina is a longtime member of the SheGeeksOut community and recently stepped into a role expanding the customer success team at Podium. She told us about modeling healthy boundaries for her team and also how she supports a team of folks who have very different backgrounds than her own. Setting the example for folks like I have, you know, pretty good guardrails. I appreciate and love my life outside of work. I make time. And for the most part, it's been a pretty hectic few weeks. So candidly, I think my husband is like, okay, it's getting better. But like after six, I'm off. I am doing whatever needs to be done. My team is still working. I have full confidence that they're doing the job that needs to be done. But if they don't see that in me, they're not going to mirror that. So if and whenever I see somebody that's working on the weekends or you know answering Slack when they shouldn't be, I call them out and like, you need to log off. So to eliminate that kind of burnout, you have to really set the example. When you're coming in, and, and this is true also across the board, but you know, with your unique situation with a very different culture in Utah, I'm curious, how, does, how has that translated into how you are approaching supporting folks, not just from different geographical locations, but different religions, different communication styles, perhaps, different stages of life? What does that look like for you when you're thinking about supporting your team going forward? Yeah, I mean, I think that I've had to take a step back and really ask people instead of just assuming things about my team and the extended, you know, experiences that they've had. Thankfully, you know, one of my biggest strengths is really sort of talking to just about anyone about anything. And at the end of the day, you know, all of my interactions have been super respectful. We all are human. All the things that, you know, you would expect somebody of a different background and experience are the same ones that, you know, you likely are all about family, work life, you know, balance, having opportunities and concentrating on those bigger topics versus thinking about the smaller granular details is a better use of my time. If people are, are want to, you know, fill me in on things that I don't know much about, I'm all about it. And I ask a lot of questions as well, because it is such a, it's such a foreign experience to me with such a large Mormon community in the Salt Lake City, Lehigh, uh, Utah area. So it is fun for me to sort of ask a lot of questions as well. And how are those questions answered? How are people feeling about like having conversation and feedback? How does that look? I mean, I also think that there's a lot of different personalities. So some of my closest friends are the ones that have had, you know, missions in Russia and Costa Rica. So when I think about asking questions, I ask about, tell me about your experience doing your mission in X. And we talk about the country and we talk about exactly what they did day to day. And I think people are open to sharing a lot of things when you show curiosity and no judgment. 
We know true inclusion takes a whole lot more than just throwing a group of people together and hoping for the best. It takes work, communication, and intention. Becca Shansky is an associate professor of psychology specializing in sex differences and brain function. Dr. Shansky runs the Laboratory of Neuroanatomy and Behavior at Northeastern University and shares with us how she intentionally brings her team together with a focus on the larger world, despite the specific challenges inherent in academia. So it's always kind of a a rotating cast. That's one of the good and bad things about academic life is people kind of come and go. And that's part of the process. Everyone kind of has their own role now and definitely learning to mentor a diverse group of people has been one of the hardest things for me to try and learn how to do. Because even during my training, you know, I had an undergrad here or there. I taught people how to do stuff, but it's not really the same as overseeing all of this at the same time and trying to understand what each person, you know, everyone has individual needs, individual learning styles, individual, like just other stuff going on in their lives. And so that's definitely been a challenge, but it can be quite rewarding too. So we have a lab meeting every week and we do a number of different activities. Either someone presents their new data. So for that's one of my favorite things because I get to learn about what we're discovering kind of in, in real time. And also I think communication is one of the most important skills that you can have as a scientist. You have to be able to explain your work to other people. And so this is a way for my trainees to get experience with that, to get feedback on that kind of stuff. And then we can all kind of interpret the data together and think about what next steps would be. Really, this is where a lot of the invisible skills come into play, learning how to think like a scientist and figure out kind of what the right decisions to make are moving forward based on the data that you have. We also have what's called Journal Club, where we discuss other published papers that have recently come out that are relevant. Again, lots of trainees presenting, discussing all of that stuff. We also started in 2020 having political discussions where we basically just kind of freeform talk about stuff that's going on in the world, whether it's we've talked about gender identity issues, Black Lives Matter, Israeli-Palestine conflict, hidden indigenous children's graves, pretty heavy stuff. But I think it's really important to understand that we're not just like in our little ivory science tower, but that like we're doing science to help the world. And we need to understand the things that the world is going through to be more sort of like present and conscious in the work that we do. It's not only employees and team members that are impacted by an organization's culture. When done right, customers and anyone who interacts with a brand, Elisa Campos Praetor is the senior recruiter at Scotch Cheap Flights and talks a bit about her experience and the challenges of being a fully remote company. Have you found that your DEI work and focus on an inclusive culture has been a differentiating factor for customers? It has. It really has. I think First off, like our our businesses in finding cheap flight deals for folks to to go on these amazing trips, right? Whether it's business or personal. And I think honestly, like travel is already it's a luxury, right? And so looking at it from the customer perspective, like A, like is everybody going to be able to even afford the cheap flights, right? Like, is it accessible and equitable across everybody that we want to advertise to? Probably not. And so I think that's something also very important to us that we want to focus on and and think about, especially from a research perspective, like target audiences, like who are our main demographics, who are the folks that continue to respond back to us? And, and yeah, who is that main audience? And I think our DEI efforts with what we're doing and continuously talking about, like everybody on the team, showcasing who the person is in the in the team, right? Like this individual happens to have a whole life and showcasing that, like that's another campaign that we did is, is trying to meet the entire team. And these stories around like what their role is, who they are, what they like to do in general, like those are pretty important to have because then... The members, which are our customers, they get to see who we are as a team, right? It's not just Scott doing all the work. It's a very large, diverse team that is doing all of this work for, for you to have a deal and be able to experience travel. But yeah, being able to showcase the people behind the magic of these deals is important because then I think it's the same way like if I see maybe a Latinx-owned company, I feel like I want to support them 
because I'm like, hey, I'm Latinx. And so I think that's important to me. Same way with with these members, right? Like we want them to understand that, A, in the first place, we want to make travel as accessible as possible by making it as cheap as possible or trying to highlight these cheap deals. And then two, like this is the team behind that effort. Right. And so showcasing the team, like we're always getting messages from members asking for for more information on like who the team is, like any type of employee, like branding, like they want to hear about it. And the success team is usually pinging us through Slack, letting us know like, hey, these customers are asking for like through their testimonials are asking for this information. And we listen, right? Like if anything, we'll produce the content and be like, all right, here you go. Like you asked for all this content, here you go. And so I think it's just another really amazing thing about Scott's as a whole is that we're listening to our our members. I love that. And I also want to take a moment to sort of, I guess, like shout out your careers page because (laughs) it's so friendly and informative. And I'd love to actually dig into it a little bit further because you mentioned you've been working remote for seven years and Scott's is of course, a hundred percent remote first company. And I'm actually not sure, has it always been a hundred percent remote or did that transition at some point? No, no, no. Yeah, they, they've been remote for the past six years. So since the inception of Scott Street Flights, when Scott Keys came up with the idea. And yeah, we're going on seven years of being a fully remote company. Mm-hmm. Wow. We definitely probably can learn a lot from you. And I guess on that note, then some of the things I really loved that are highlighted on the page are the mandatory three weeks minimum vacation time, the meetups, the retreats. SGO is doing a lot of similar stuff to try and support as we oh. are also remote, although we did not start off that way. I'm really, I guess, just curious. You probably had the luxury or the benefit of not having to scramble in early 2020 when we did make that societal shift to remote work. But on the flip side, I'm sure you were all still impacted in some ways because of just the world and everything else that's going on. And so were there any like lessons learned or, or tips or even topics of consideration that you all are talking about when you're thinking about how do you work with each other with that sort of like inclusivity DEI lens? Yeah, that's a good question. And honestly, like even being a fully remote company, we still do see the challenges across like, how can we be more inclusive within the company, but still make it authentic and genuine where it's not just another checkbox to do, right? Like that's recommended to us. And so I honestly, one thing that I, I've seen is it's like having the leaders play examples, right, of what they want the team to be like, hey, like this is okay to take vacation. This is okay to not be online, right? Like this is okay to take some sick time. This is okay to go take care of your kid if, if they're not feeling well. Those examples really make a huge difference in how the team thinks and, and understands, like, yeah, like our lives are going to obviously things will come up here and there and and this remote company is is able to support that and also like being mindful too that we're all coming from different walks of life so you have parents you have people that are t- probably taking care of parents at home you have people that are probably like in a pretty remote area in general so like resource basically we do have some folks out like in rural areas and so it's harder to access maybe an airport or like maybe their nearest store. So being mindful of where everybody is, it's the beauty of being remote. And then to like giving us a glimpse into everybody's lives, right? We're not just all in one area, say in one office, and that's the only way we think. And that's all we know. And so we love hearing stories of where people are at, what they're doing. And they naturally give these stories out. Like Scott's really good at asking a question on a weekly basis that really carries a lot of thought and just in general, like creates a lot of like, hey, everybody wants to participate and start sharing their experience or their backgrounds. And I really love seeing that because it wasn't forced. It's just a very simple question. Then people get into the conversation and it starts going on, right? Like, and then to being mindful of the time zones, right? Like we're all across the US and async communication is pretty important to us. So I've worked with other remote companies where they expected me to respond the minute they ping me. But then I'm like, you're in the East Coast and I'm in mountain time. Like, I'm pretty sure that's not going to always be the case. And so at Scott's, I really appreciate the inclusivity of being mindful of that. We're all in different time zones. If anything, like a message is not going to be responded right away, for example, and being okay with that, right? Like not making it seem like everything is an emergency. Because it's also another thing too, where I'm like, I've worked in other remote companies that were like, everything's an emergency at all at all points in time. And so I love that about Scott's. And then also I love the fact that 
when it comes to our town halls, for example, so we like to celebrate everybody, but also give them the space, right? Like we recognize the folks on the team that don't want to be the center of attention, don't enjoy being like called out. And so being mindful like that, like at least sending them a private message that they did a great job, right? Like still doing a shout out still in the way that that individual would prefer versus just generic shout outs to everybody, regardless of who they are, right? Like I think that amount of detail and mindfulness is, is awesome to see. While Scott's was fully remote from the start, many other organizations are still trying to manage the logistics of a hybrid team and what an equitable return to office policy might look like. This is Jason Fuchs, Senior Director of Learning and Development at Essex Property and Trust. Yeah, we're, it's still impacting us to a degree. I mean, like most companies, we were, everybody's doing, until we get more information, everybody's just at home. We just, I'd say in the last couple of months, have reopened, if you will, our offices. You know, we're now, we're right now, we're at a goal is two days a week in the office, three days at home, depending on at least one day, but the goal is two days. Then September, we're going to ramp up three days in the week. No longer will it be a five day in the office kind of week. I think we've we've shown that we can be successful with this kind of of model. But I tell you what, you know, I'm in the office today, as you can probably tell, and I, I come in probably more than most folks. I like being in the office because I want to engage with folks. There's something you can't get through, obviously, as you guys know, through Zoom. And I'm looking at the office here today. Most people come in on Tuesday. So people are getting back into it. But one of the challenges we face, and I don't know other companies you've talked to, is the pandemic is, I want to say, forced. But many people look at their lives and say, what do I want to do now? What do I want to? I can't go back to a five-day work week in the office or, or a three-day work week in the office. I want to work 100% remote. I want to move. You know, the great resignation, you always hear about that, right? You know, that affected us to a degree as well. We've had folks who have said, I don't want to come back to the office even one day a week. And it's like, how do you, how do you, I must combat that. How, but how do you work with that associate? You know, because you can't make them some rules for some folks and some rules for other folks. That just creates a whole mess of stuff. But in terms of how the COVID has shaped us, it's probably made us, I want to say probably come, we've come together a lot more because we've had to. It was sort of, I think everybody was a sort of everybody's in the boat together, let's figure it out and let's work together. And we had, we had a fair bit of that, but it's forced us and allowed us to seek other ways to engage folks. It can't just be, obviously it can't just be Zoom, it can't just be in person, there can be some a mix there as well. But we still have our challenges. We still face some serious challenges around it. Like most companies, we had a, a mandate with the vaccine and, and, and that whole thing. And what does the future look like? And it, it, we were probably one of the last ones to actually enforce some kind of a mandate because we really, everybody cared about them for so I would say we care so much about them and a lot of us, we understand how it can affect them. And we were very careful in our decision-making in terms of how do we go about this? And you know, companies, companies like Starbucks, and they were so quick to adopt and put a mandate out there. And then when people saw a company like Starbucks doing it so quickly, it was like, well, like, we should do that too, because they're Starbucks and they're big. And we're, we're small, we should be able to do that. But we didn't look at that way. We were very smart in how we approached it. But again, we're still having our struggles with it. I think COVID is here to stay. I think we're all aware of that now. Yeah, I think it's it's so interesting just thinking about, you know, where are we going to be going collectively in terms of working in this new world reality that we find ourselves in. And I think especially, again, for a company like Essex, where there are probably job functions where they just cannot be remote, right? And as much as you might be like, oh, we're going to do hybrid or we're going to do two days a week or three days a week, there's probably folks who are on call. There are people who have mm-hmm. to be on site, who have to take care of the physical yeah. infrastructure. And that can be challenging too, because they might want more flexibility and can't get it. Or now that there are folks who are working more remote, not understanding the challenges. And, you know, and I think that's something to keep in mind too, which is complicated going forward. Yeah. You know, we have, as you know, Essex is, we have our corporate side, which is myself, who sit routinely in an office setting. And we have our operations side, which is all of our leasing associates, all of our maintenance folks who are our community managers who work timelessly day in and day out on site of properties. Being our company, when COVID hit, we couldn't shut down. We couldn't, we still needed people to be in the, physically in the offices. And that created some angst, you know, hey, why do I got to go in with the corporate folks can be, be at home the entire time. It was a very, very challenging time. And there were probably conversations that took place that I wasn't aware of that were tough calls to make, right? Because for better or for worse, it creates a divide a little bit in the, in the company, I imagine, in terms of all oh, you know, the corporate folks, they can sit inside all, at their home all day and be 100% safe. This is pre-vaccine, if you will. They can be 100% safe or I'm risking my health by having to go in and be at a property. But you know, as 
we don't function without our properties. You know, obviously, obviously there's, and that's, that's the larger part of our organization of, of our roughly 1,700, 800 employees. A good two thirds of that is in the operation side, being customer facing, if you will. That was a huge, a huge challenge for us. I don't want to say issue, but it was a challenge in terms of how do we message that and taking everybody's feelings into account and personal situations into account. It was again, we had we had actually a, within the HR team, we had a special designated COVID team who dealt with all the COVID issues. And you know, I would hear some you know periphery stuff. So I I recognize the challenges they faced day in and day out. And it for two years it wore them down. For two years, it was the number one topic, number one issue. We could be doing a, a town hall talking about our financials for the year and without fail in the chat, somebody's talking about COVID and you had to be able to address those things and talk and you couldn't, you couldn't ignore things. That's the worst thing you can do is ignore things. You can't do that. That just makes it worse. So we did struggle very much, Felicia and Rachel, early on with that balance of folks in the field who need to be in those offices talking to customers and talking to tenants and those of us like myself who had the ability to work at home and really shield themselves from most danger, if you will. That was a tough, tough time for us. But we have great management, great leadership, and we have great employees, more importantly, that understood the challenges and were flexible and were willing to work with us. So I got credit them for their resiliency in that aspect. Melanie Ho, author of Beyond Leaning In, shares concerns about balancing return to office and hybrid teams. I, I mean, I'm very worried about hybrid work backfiring. So I am generally an advocate of flexible flexibility in, in all its forms. I think a challenge is that a lot of companies are patting themselves on the back for doing hybrid because they're thinking that actually they, they, they're looking at data that tells them this will be a plus for women and people of color. And what they don't understand is that it'll be too easy to create a two-tiered system between people in the office and people who are not in the office, especially since there's a lot of research on how it's often CEOs in the C-suite who want to be in the office. So we end up with all the proximity bias and presenteeism and all of that with the people who are in the office versus outside. And I don't think there's an interrogation as to why it is that certain groups are happier remote than in the office and that so much of it is that for folks who previously felt excluded in the office, there has been an absence of exclusion when it comes to the Zoom environment. I always think of, I was talking to this woman, Alexandra Jacobson, she runs Worked Up, which is a group to support Gen Z women who are earlier in, in their careers. And she tells the story of how when she was working in entertainment as an assistant, the female assistants would wait by the door if they needed something from a male executive and the male assistants would just barge in and how that was so predictable every single time. And I think now we have an environment where if you're a woman who used to feel excluded because you watched that happen on Zoom, you don't notice it's happening and so you don't feel excluded. But that doesn't mean it's still not happening, especially if there's some people in the office now who are able to do that. And so I just see a lot of challenges related to how to do hybrid work well for everybody, just in terms of how we codify all the things that used to be informal. That There's research on how people rated supervisors better during the pandemic. And Peter Capelli in his book on the future of work has some, has some good observations on that, where he says, well, is it actually that supervisors were better or is it that some people hated their supervisors so much that they're just happy not to see them or that some supervisors were so bad they never checked in with their staff and in the pandemic, their employers made them check in with their staff. And so I think there's just all of these issues with how leadership and culture and work were already really messed up. The pandemic environment has just obfuscated them. Now we're going to go into a hybrid environment where it's just going to get even more complicated. Whether virtual, in-person, or some combination of the two, we know that when a diverse group of people is working together on a problem together, that's when the magic can happen. Here's Charis Loveland, Global Program Manager of the Digital Innovation Team at Amazon, with how her team works on reducing bias in products. I personally have, have just really benefited from different initiatives at my different companies that have helped to put my accomplishments and achievements really front and center to tr help avoid you know bias and discrimination. And so I, I think when I think about this specific issue, I think a lot about my training in design thinking. I did the high-tech MBA program at Northeastern, and I learned about how to approach interesting design challenges 
experiences with empathy and understanding of an awareness of an audience. And so how I've always couched this idea of of kind of bias and, and empathy is really by going back to those end users, whether that's our customers, whether that's our employees, and really trying to get to the heart at what drives people and and what motivates folks and and also to introduce that idea of inclusion. So a lot of the emotional intelligence training that we do at Amazon really dives into people's different perspectives and how someone can bring something unique to the table. Maybe it's because for instance you're an engineer versus a designer. Those two types of people think in very different ways. And so one way to eliminate and reduce bias in a product is by getting those two people in the same room who share very different perspectives and getting them to come to some consensus on design decisions. So in a lot of our training, we talk about the benefits of diversity, inclusion, and equity, and how seeing things from a different perspective can not only help us to build better products, but also to help reduce some of the friction that inevitably comes up when you have people from different perspectives. So we actually do an exercise in our keynote speech at Amazon where we show, you may be familiar with these images, and there's a couple images where you can see a picture of a duck, but if you look at it a different way, you can see a picture of a rabbit. And likewise, there's the second picture we also show of a woman who is kind of elderly looking down, but if you look at it from a different perspective, it looks like a younger woman looking over her shoulder. And so when we show these pictures to our colleagues, we ask them, you know, who is right and who is wrong? And people start to really get this aha moment. Oh, well, just because I saw the duck first doesn't mean that that's wrong or the rabbit first. And understanding people's differing perspectives and that two differing perspectives can both have validity. We talk a lot about asking open-ended questions and getting really curious. My manager likes to say that if you have diversity, equity, and inclusion, that's an output. So the actual input to that is this empathy that we're teaching in the emotional intelligence program. So that's one way that I like to to think about bias in the workplace is just from an educational perspective and, and sometimes, you know, just introducing something, saying it in a different way, but most importantly, keeping people aware of this curiosity that we all have innately. It seems like sometimes, you know, life tries to beat that curiosity out of us. When I've seen bias in the workplace, place, usually it is some sort of a blind spot and some sort of a, again, lack of diversity in the decision-making process, right? So whenever I've observed that from the back end, I always think about what is it I can do to introduce more diversity and perspective into this situation? So I've certainly had experiences at different employers where everyone was subject to groupthink. So in that case, one of my go-to remedies is just to bring in someone from a different team with a differing perspective. Sometimes that person identifies as male, other times that person identifies as female, but often the job role, you know, whether it's a QA person or a design person, the way they think and the way they can articulate uh, different concerns can often lead the group to examining other strategies that they hadn't considered before. Here's Jenny Chang, Career Clarity Coach and Global Head of Talent at Aura Ring. Everyone's talking about the great resignation. We're talking about more than just one R. We're talking about resignation, reshuffling, relocation, reimagining. So much is happening right now. And you're sort of right in the middle of it with your role and your experience. So... What are your thoughts around sort of like what comes next with the future of work given where we're at right now? Sure. I think, first of all, we're all part of this future work ecosystem. I don't think we necessarily signed up for it. But now, to me, the pace, how fast it's moving, it's really more like now of work. And companies and employees are both learning as we go. But I will say the companies that evolve to understand what employees need permanently is more important than ever. And I think you mentioned it, high on that list is really the flexibility in how, when, 
and where we work. So the workforce, which is all of us, we once were the complainers, right, about life-work balance, but we're finally starting to do something about it and deciding what our non-negotiables are. Now, as women, we still care about pay equity, but in general, many people, including me, would consider companies that offer the intrinsic values like belonging culture, flexible work, contract work, benefits that suit their life stage, moving back and forth between being an IC or people manager, four-day work weeks. Wow, how would that go? Part-time job sharing, equal and generous mat and pat leave. And that's just to name a few. And even if that means getting maybe a little less pay. I feel like there's been this really interesting shift where in the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of organizations were like, yes, of course, take time off, do what you need to do. We're all in this together, a lot of check-ins, all that kind of stuff. And now I feel like not every company, but a lot of organizations are like, back to work as usual. And we forgot about the last you know, year or two of us readjusting. And so I'm curious because we're seeing such a big trend with people saying, you know, guess what? This doesn't work for me anymore, or I need something different, or I don't want to be here. What advice do you have for people who are at organizations where maybe it's not totally toxic, but it's not great? Do you feel like people should try to be addressing these issues internally before they jump ship? Or is it just yeah. like, you know what? This is the reality. Like, go where you you are valued. What's your thought on that? Yeah, yeah. You know how we say managers or maybe just in general, people are not mind readers. So that's why we have employee surveys and people are supposed to be anonymous and will say these things. But they're not necessarily specific because they're anonymous. So I do think what you just said is, yes, you do want to address this reprioritization within your current situation, within your current company, because maybe you never highlighted what's most important to you now after the pandemic. Maybe before when you weren't a mother, you were able to take on more projects that were more time sensitive. Maybe you chose that because that was your part of your interest, but maybe for your current life stage is different. So That's why I talk about life stages a lot. I think companies just need to realize that, first of all, one size doesn't fit all. Mm. And as long as they encourage that platform or opportunity for people to talk about it, essentially the, the first line of conversation that's going to help you decide if this company is really going to step up for what you need is your conversation with your immediate manager. And if all else fails... Or you decide there are other interesting priorities you want to explore. It's not because you don't like your current situation. You just simply maybe been there for a long time. And now there's different new companies that are popping up or opportunities. Or maybe you, again, you want to maybe think about pivoting a little bit of what you want to do. You can do that. And for many people, actually, that means they might want to do more of a side project or side hustle, as some people call it. The intention isn't to add on more work or responsibility in your life, but it's more giving you the opportunity to explore what gives you the flow, like what balance out your interest and maybe what you want to do down the road. And finally, here's Belma McCaffrey, CEO and founder of Work Bigger to close us out. From the company angle and, and the workplace angle, what do you think are maybe some some organizational solutions or approaches or best practices even that you've seen work to support high achievers or employees in general or these, these folks who are part of your community who are looking for a non-toxic, non-traumatic place for their next step? Yeah. So... The first thing I want to say is if you can, as a company, if you can find ways to really facilitate safety for your employees, it's going to go so far, right? They will have more trust in you. They'll be able to share more. They'll be able to connect more. I think that's really foundational. Like really, how can you facilitate more trust in your organization and facilitate more safety, I think is foundational, right? Because if people feel safe, they're going to open up more, they're going to share more, they're going to engage more. It's just, it's, it's like the natural next step. What I've also seen is, yeah, just 
understanding like the human psychology and, and what's happening. Like one very powerful workshop that we've led with organizations is a workshop on how the brain operates, right? And very similar to the three selves framework, right? Where we have these like different parts of ourselves that tend to be triggered. Understanding that our brain really operates in two ways. We're either in the away state, we're in fight or flight, or when we're in the toward state, we're in that place of possibility, right? So really what people need to lean into that place of possibility more again, is like safety, trust. Uh, You have to really understand people's needs. So I think doing that deeper work, inviting that deeper work into your organization is so important. So I, I really hope companies embrace that more and more and they really create safe spaces for people to share and community is another one. Like any workshop that I've led, one of the biggest takeaways has always been oh my God, I'm not alone in this. Like there's other people who feel this way and that essentially binds people together and it brings it binds them into your organization, right? If you're supporting that community for them. I'm excited. I want to see more companies truly prioritizing well-being, prioritizing inclusivity. And the one thing I'll say, that can really only happen if leaders do the work. Like the leaders have to do the work. I've had companies come to me and say, we want this for, you know, our individual contributors. And my response has been, well, are you doing this too? Are you also going to take this training? Because if you don't take it, then you can't lead them through it. And it really, you know, not to sound cliche, but it does come from the top. So I hope more leaders are embracing this work, doing the work they need to do to heal, to work on their own trauma. And then that is how we'll see more change. I really believe that. And I've seen that. So that I'll, I'll end it there. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. Please don't forget to rate, share, and subscribe. It makes a huge difference in the reach of this podcast and by extension, this work. Make sure to tune in next week when we talk about the challenges of operating businesses that put DEI in the forefront within a larger society of white supremacy culture. If you're looking to further your own knowledge and gain support alongside other incredible people, join our free community. You'll get a welcoming, built-in support system grounded in the values of diversity, equity, and inclusion. You'll have access to bonus episodes, additional resources, courses, webinars, coaching, and more. Check it out at SheGeeksOut.com community. This episode was written, produced, and edited by Vienna Giacomo, hosted by Felicia Jadzak and Rachel Murray. The guests featured in this episode were Amaya Arubarena, Karina Becerra, Dr. Becca Shansky, Elisa Campos-Pretor, Melanie Ho, Jason Fuchs, Ginny Chang, Charis Loveland, and Belma McCaffrey. Our facilitators were Dr. Victoria Berletza, Rachel Sadler, and Kaya Rivera.